You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in July of 2023 with episode 448 of The Corbett Report podcast, Television. All right, so you have a little special treat today. Uh, Long story short, back in January, or earlier this year anyway, I was asked by a documentary filmmaker to provide some video footage of me responding to some questions for a documentary that they were putting together on the question of media, television, news, etc. And obviously, this is something that I've done a bit of research on. I say obviously because I hope by now you have seen previous editions of this Corbett Report podcast, specifically the Media Matrix documentary series, which goes through the Gutenberg conspiracy all the way up to the metaverse and everything in between, the last 500 years of media history condensed down into three, I think, highly watchable and relatively short uh, documentary-style products. And then also, of course, the Mass Media A History online course, which you can purchase from newworldnextweek.com, which includes six hours of lectures on the history of mass media and the future of mass media, really. Um, A very detailed deep dive. Again, I hope you are already familiar with that. I've done a lot of work on the history of media in the past decade and a half of doing this work. I, I continue to talk about it because I think it is extremely important. So, of course, it was very nice to be, uh, to be contacted by a documentary filmmaker for my expertise on the subject. So uh, this person sent me a number of different questions and said, record yourself answering these questions and send them on and I'll put it in the documentary. Okay, great. So I did exactly that and sent them off and I got the, oh, thank you very much for doing that uh, response. And then never heard back. (laughs) And I just looked it up. Apparently this uh, documentary has been released now and I I don't think I'm in it. So (laughs) I I guess that was just a digital fart in the wind that disappeared into the ether. (laughs) But luckily for you, of course, I still have the, uh, the recording of myself answering these questions. And I think... Well, if I may be so humble, <laughs> uh, I, I don't tend to do things half-assed. I use my full buttocks in everything that I do, and this is no this is no exception. And I think there's some valuable information in these questions and answers. I, I've tried to put in some interesting tidbits and some interesting information. So why not? Well, I've still I've got it sitting around. Why not share it with you guys? So I hope you do appreciate this. There is some, as I say, I think there's some interesting information in here about the nature of media, how it operates, and what we can do about it. And on that note, I'm going to play some of these questions and answers for you, and then I'll be back at the end to just summarize what we've learned today. Question one. How has propaganda through television been used in the past? As one of the most ubiquitous and powerful media of the past century, people who are interested in shaping and molding society have known about the utility of television as a medium for conveying messages and shaping public opinion for a long time. But it's best not to take that from some random person, but directly from the horse's mouth. At Davos, at the World Economic Forum gathering in 2007, Rupert Murdoch of the Fox News uh, behemoth, the Fox Television Corporation and a string of newspapers as well, admitted openly that 
he used his media empire to try to sell the American public on Bush's Iraq war policies. He says he failed in that attempt, but he did say that he consciously and purposefully applied his media power to try to shape public opinion on that. For example, take the war. Uh, has I'm not just talking about the United States, but in terms of you having a global media enterprise, I mean, have you shaped that agenda at all in terms of perceptions of the war, in terms of how the war is viewed? No, I don't think so. I mean, we've tried. (laughs) (laughs) Tried in what way? (laughs) Well, we basically supported uh, our papers and our television. I would say supported uh, the Bush policy in the Middle East. We've been very critical of its execution. But um, our support hasn't meant very much because clearly public opinion now has grown very, very tired of the whole enterprise. That is one very straightforward example of that, and it takes many different forms. In fact, just two years after that admission, uh, the Fox media empire came out once again with an admission of sorts where uh, there was a Fox promotional video boasting about how the company had, since 2006, been deliberately inserting climate change information into all of its uh, entertainment media content, not just on the news editorial side, but into the dramatic uh, shows that were hosted um, on the network or produced by the network, Uh, deliberately inserting climate change messaging in there in a deliberate attempt to shape and mold public opinion on that issue. The biggest thing we've done is inserting messages about the environment into uh, some of our content. I don't follow. Green, it means environmentally friendly. The lifeblood of our company is the quality of our TV shows, and we would accomplish nothing if we compromised that quality. Going green doesn't fit with the rest of the show. We're working magic. Make it fit. Hey, Brian. I'm not going to recycle this aluminum can. I'm just going to throw it in the trash. Ha! Your Earth's bitch. Again, these, whether or not you agree with these particular ideas and policies and how they were being pushed, the point is that television is, has been, and presumably will continue to be used to try to shape public opinion on key and important events. Question two. What are your memories of television news growing up? I have a vivid memory of being about 12 years old and watching the evening news with my with my father. And we were watching the the news broadcast and it was talking. There was a news segment that was talking about something to do with a, uh, a product, some sort of new product that had been invented. And I don't recall what that product was at the time. But I remember watching this news segment being presented to us, the viewers in the audience, as news. For the first time, we're getting a glimpse inside Amazon's fulfillment centers to see just how the company is keeping its employees safe and healthy while still delivering packages to our doorsteps. Todd Walker takes us inside. And looking to my father after that and saying, was that a news segment or was that an advertisement? And he said, I think it was an advertisement, son. 
Amazon to deliver essentials for the first time. We're getting a glimpse inside Amazon's fulfillment centers to see how the company is keeping employees safe and healthy while still delivering packages to your door. Todd Walker takes us inside. And from that time forward, certainly, I have had a very keen understanding that what is presented to us in the context of, say, the news is not necessarily the news in some sort of objective or neutral sense. The way that I think a lot of people grew up in a previous bygone era listening to Walter Cronkite tell you the way the world is, I think people have accepted that the news is some sort of thing out in the world that is found and then presented to the audience without comment. Um, but of course, that is not true. It is a constructed artificial concept that is engineered by people who have their own financial and other interests that they are looking to promote. And I've had a keen understanding of that since the time I grew up. Amazon says it has spent $800 million on increased wages and overtime pay during the pandemic. The company has also hired an additional 175,000 associates to keep up with their demand. Having said that, I think it was perhaps less obvious that that type of infomercial on the evening news was, I think, less overt and in-your-face decades ago than it is in the current age, um, as, unfortunately, the hyper-commercialization of everything, including uh, news uh, and other forms of information, has proceeded apace. Amazon says it has spent $800 million on increased wages and overtime pay during the pandemic. The company has hired an additional 175,000 associates to keep up with the demand. Question three. Is television a realistic reflection of reality? Television is obviously not a reflection of reality. And we can see this obviously uh, just from the medium itself. Uh, when we are staring at the screen, we know that we are seeing a two-dimensional representation of reality, whatever it is that is being presented on that screen. And we know that it is artificially limited by the frame of the television set, the, at this point, 16 by 9 ratio rectangle of uh, that we, the viewer, are privy to seeing, which, of course, excludes the 360-degree reality that exists in the real world. Because if you think that what is being shown to you in a specific frame is that thing, then you're not thinking about what they are not showing you. What if I pointed the camera this way? What if I pointed the camera this way? What if I pointed the camera this way? Or what if I pointed the camera this way? These may seem like trivial distinctions, but they are in fact fundamental to understanding how uh, a convincing enough representation or portrayal can trick, at the very least, the subconscious mind into believing that what it is seeing is in some way real. And this is not just something that affects the way that fictional, admittedly and and obviously fictional material is presented, but also that material which is supposedly nonfiction, like the news. And we can all think of many different ways in which the news can be framed to show a particular viewpoint, sometimes quite literally, by what is included in the frame of the television versus what is excluded in around it, but also metaphorically, what is focused on in the news coverage versus the wider context of this. I think people felt like the Supreme Court made the decision here in Wisconsin that it was time to open up. But you can see here, just around. Nobody's wearing them. Nobody's, uh, the there you go, including the cameraman. Yeah. That it was time to open up. You can see here, just around. 
And nobody's wearing them. Nobody's Including the cameraman. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. Half your crew's not wearing them. And I think there have been many people who have dissected and talked about this at great length, perhaps none more articulately than Neil Postman, who wrote about this extensively in the 1980s and 90s, as he warned about the the encroachment of television uh, into the daily life, the habits, and also the civic society, the social conversations of the average person. Well, I like to think that um, television newscasters have uh, created a new um, grammatical category. Uh, see, now this is, is, a, is a special kind of conjunction. But whereas uh, we were taught in school that conjunctions connect one thing with another, now this is a conjunction that disconnects one thing from another. So that when a newscaster says, and now this, he means that what you're about to see has no connection with what you have just been seeing and that you must not be morbidly preoccupied with what you've just, be, uh, you've just been seeing. And you must now pay attention to a commercial. Now, I think this now this phenomenon um, is a terrifically important from a psychological point of view. For instance, what sort of person is sitting at home who is addressed in the following way. Um, the newscaster says, there was an earthquake in Mexico City. We're going to show you pictures. And 100,000 people are believed to be dead. Goes on. Now this. And now the Calvin Klein jeans commercial is on. Well, now let's just think of what is required of the audience now. Ought the audience to be saying, now wait a second, I, I can't think about a Calvin Klein jeans commercial. We're talking about 100,000 people buried, possibly. Let's get back to this. Uh, well, television doesn't want this, because if you linger too much, on this story from Mexico City, then you can't pay attention to the commercial. So they've invented this curious piece of language. You say, now this, and that's a signal. It says, whatever concerns you had, whatever feelings might have been evoked by some of these dramatic images we've shown you, forget about it because now we want you to pay attention to this commercial. Not only obviously bringing down the attention span of the average person, noting that the average shot on television at that time in the 1980s was something around four seconds. I, I believe that's probably uh, gone down since then. Um, but also noting how the, uh, the, the types of things that are representable on the screen are, of course, only a, sl a thin s slice of actual reality. Uh, for example, Postman made the point that you cannot make, you cannot present in television in a way that makes sense in the, the form of that medium the space for reflective thought and 
uh, considered debate of issues. No, they take the form of a television debate, which is obviously quite a different thing, where people are not pausing and reflecting, contemplating, going back, questioning their own assumptions. No, you have two typically very loud-mouthed people who are shouting at each other uh, for the entertainment of the viewing audience, and that is not really what a debate is. And Postman, for example, reflects back back to previous presidential debates back in the time of, say, Abraham Lincoln, where a, a presidential debate would go on for as much as eight hours with someone making an opening statement that could last literally hours at a time, and then the rebuttal taking hours uh, at a time. Uh, contrast that with the what passes for presidential debate in our current era, and I think you see the, the type of dumbing down that the television medium has introduced by the very nature of the way that it presents information to us. Question four. How powerful a tool is the television for influencing a population? How easy is it to manipulate a viewer? In the fall of 1990, as the United States government was preparing military uh, intervention in the Gulf and was preparing the public for the possibility of that intervention, there was a concerted propaganda campaign to get people outraged about Saddam Hussein's government and its actions in Kuwait, and to get people motivated for a military intervention. And as part of that propaganda campaign, the Congressional Human Rights Caucus held a series of hearings in October of 1990. And at one of these hearings, there was a young Kuwaiti girl that was presented to the caucus with some dramatic testimony, uh, supposedly garnered from her time as a volunteer at a Kuwaiti hospital, in which she testified, I volunteered, volunteered at the Aladan hospital with 12 other women who wanted to help as well. I was the youngest volunteer. The other women were from 20 to 30 years old. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators, took the incubators, and left the children to die on the cold floor. And this dramatic testimony, delivered in a dramatic fashion by a weeping young Kuwaiti girl, was certainly affecting. And for those who missed it on its original C-SPAN television broadcast, they undoubtedly caught the highlights of that testimony on the evening news where it was repeated ad nauseum. And it wasn't just the news. Of course, that was a story that was then picked up by George H.W. Bush, who referenced it no less than six times in various speeches leading up to the Gulf War. Babies pulled from incubators and scattered like firewood across the floor. And they had kids in incubators, and they were thrown out of the incubators so that Kuwait could be systematically dismantled. And, in fact, even in the hearings in the House for the passage of the Gulf War resolution, uh, there was a congressman that brought up the incubator baby story. It was well known to Americans by that point. And then, of course, in January 1991, the Gulf War resolution passed, the Gulf War began, and military intervention resulted, at least in part due to that dramatic testimony by the young Kuwaiti girl, who was later revealed to be the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. Her name was Naira, and she delivered that testimony, which had been written by Hill and Knowlton, a PR agency that had been hired by the Kuwaiti government to present that scripted testimony to the public. And that was revealed years later in investigative reporting done actually originally by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. 
the video news release, the high-tech PR blurb. Hill and Knowlton generated an audio-video feast of images for the media. And one of the most compelling was Naira. I could not help but think of my nephew, who, if born premature, might have died that day as well. She seemed to be alone before the Congressional Human Rights Caucus identified only as a Kuwaiti escapee. But we've discovered she wasn't alone at all. And she wasn't just a simple Kuwaiti escapee. In fact, just a few seats away was her father, Kuwait's ambassador to the United States and Canada. Naira quickly slipped out of the caucus hearing, back into the protective folds of her family, the extended royal family of Kuwait, headed by the emir, Jabir al-Sabah. And it, it, it came out that this entire story had been concocted, but many, many years too late for it to actually have an effect on uh, the willingness or unwillingness of the American public to go to war in the Gulf. Obviously, that was, by the time this information came to public attention, a fait accompli. So, uh, the television uh, has always been a convenient way to steer public opinion in various ways because people are generally trusting of what they see on the screen. There is a young Kuwaiti girl who was a volunteer at a Kuwaiti hospital who is telling us what she saw. And you can see her give this testimony. You can see her weeping. You feel her emotions. And you feel emotionally invested in the outcome of this story that is being presented to the viewers. And we have seen many, many, many iterations of this type of story playing out before. And after the Naira testimony, but that's a particularly uh, interesting and definitive case in point, where this was a literal propaganda campaign that was later revealed to be such, but that was completely successful and helped to accomplish its, the aims of the propagandists. When you look back in retrospect, the things that stand out in your mind are some of those pictures, some of those images, some of those stories. And you think that, in fact, there was... Uh, 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 the kind of outcome we wanted to happen, happened. This only functions really if the public is generally trusting of the media. And I think in the age of Naira's testimony prior to the Gulf War, I think people were generally more trusting of what they saw on TV. Uh, if someone was presenting dramatic testimony to the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, one could imagine that they were not making it up. They were not literally reading a script by a PR agency, even if they were. After enough of those types of dirty tricks have been exposed and the public is aware that the news media is not a neutral, objective uh, reporting uh, entity, it is uh, run by people with vested interests of various sorts, financial and otherwise, in presenting a certain picture of reality, I think people become a little bit wiser and start to ask the basic questions that you would ask in such a case. Who is this young Kuwaiti girl? Can we know her name? Uh, why is she presenting this? Is there any verification of this story? Basic types of questions that any actual reporting on the incident would have supposedly done at the time, but obviously did not. A cynic might suspect that a $10 million public relations campaign conducted by a major sophisticated agency like Hill and Knowlton may have led uh, to some excesses bordering on disinformation. And that's, um, I think, an exaggeration of, of the views here. There wasn't a public relations media drive to, to uh, win the, the uh, emotions of the world with the Kuwaiti people, because the facts spoke for themselves. And 
you can see this growing media literacy slash skepticism reflected in the polls that are conducted every single year um, by Pew and other uh, reporting agencies that are polling uh, to find out the general level of trust uh, by the public in various institutions, including the news media, specifically television, newspaper, radio, etc. And that has demonstrated that over the past decade or more, there has been a steadily declining trust in establishment media institutions. I think this is actually a hopeful sign, because I do think it shows that the public is becoming more aware that these types of deceptive campaigns uh, can and are being waged against the public at all times, and that we have to be prepared to engage with the media critically and skeptically, to not simply believe what we are seeing on a screen, because there it is on the screen. We have to know the context of that, and I think people are, are more equipped to understand that in 2023 than they have been in times past. New poll shows only 6% of people trust the mainstream media. It's been eroded by perceptions of inaccuracy and bias fueled in part by American skepticism about what they read on social media. So, James, this story is coming from the Associated Press, and this polling was actually done by them and a couple of other media groups. Question 5. Can media manipulation be attributed to certain psychological techniques? In November of 1969, Herbert Krugman, who went on to become the head of public opinion research at General Electric headquarters in, in Connecticut, he was conducting some research that involved taking volunteers and attaching electrodes to their brains to monitor their brainwave activity while those subjects watched television. And he found that within about 30 seconds of the television being turned on, the brain waves of these television viewers switched from predominantly beta waves, which indicate alert and conscious attention, to alpha waves, which indicate an unfocused, receptive lack of attention, uh, a state of mind often associated with daydreaming or uh, just coming out of sleep, something along those lines. And this was startling research, but research that was uh, duplicated and reproduced again and again throughout the decades. Even as late as 2018, similar research has been conducted and has shown similar results that the television, via its flicker rate or whatever neurological process is at play, does have an effect on the brainwave activity and the conscious state of the viewer. Uh, this obviously has huge impl implications, um, which I think have been realized by the television programmers for a very long time, uh, that people in that, uh, in that daydream state are much more receptive uh, to ideas that will uh, bypass their conscious attention and go straight into their subconscious. And in fact, this is something that has been uh, noted and talked about, openly talked about by people involved in the television media, for example, specifically television advertising pioneers like Tony Schwartz, who wrote a very interesting expose of his own industry called The Responsive Cord, How Media Manipulate You, What You Buy, Who You Vote For, How You Think. And in that remarkably truthful book, uh, Schwartz talked about the very types of techniques that he was employing as a TV, not only an ad executive selling brands of toothpaste or what have you, but also attempting to 
sell politicians to the public as part of their PR teams. Uh, he noted many of the techniques that can be employed to bypass the conscious attention of the viewer and to make them uh, believe something without even knowing why it is they believe. And in his research, he concludes that we are not concerned with getting things across to people as much as out of people. Electronic media are particularly effective tools in this regard because they provide us with direct access to people's minds. And I think this is the proper way to understand this type of electronic media with the flickering images that we are interpreting in our brain as reality, even though they are obviously two-dimensional representations of that reality. That process by which our brain tricks us into thinking we are looking at some sort of reality is the process by which all sorts of ideas can be implanted in our subconscious without our usual conscious attention um, acting as uh, a guard, as it were, to these types of ideas. And this can be used for purposes that are less nefarious, like trying to sell us on the latest brand of car or whatever, or very nefarious, like trying to sell us on war. Question six. Can you speak about the corporations involved in funding television? One of the hallmarks of the electronic media revolution, from the time of the development of the telegraph through to the radio to the television, I think one of the hallmarks of that era is the consolidation of the media into the hands of a few corporations. And this has been variously presented over the years as the big five or big six corporations that control most of what you read, see, and hear. And there are different ways of breaking down precisely what that ownership looks like. But at any rate, it has uh, been the case for decades now that there are certain corporations that really do control a vast amount of media and its production. And this is, to some extent, a reflection of the development of the technology itself. Back in the day of a movable type printing press a la Gutenberg, it was possible for a craftsman and some of his business partners to create their own printing press and to begin operations and to print uh, material for anyone who could afford to print a pamphlet or something along those lines. It was relatively accessible by certainly not all the public, but a, a good swath of the public. But as that technology developed and became more complicated, as we got into rotary press printing and other developments in the, uh, the printing press, it became more and more capital intensive. It became less and less accessible by the average person. At a certain point, you needed to be extremely wealthy in order to own a press that had any actual reach and the ability to spread information far and wide. And at a certain point, it probably became even out of the bounds of the average wealthy person and became exclusively the, uh, the purview of massive corporations. And that's exactly what we saw, the corporatization of the media in the 20th century around the electronic media. And of course, television, no exception to that, the television networks themselves and how they developed and which co companies got to uh, to gain access to uh, franchises of, of television networks in which cities was all part of the pork barrel politics that was going on at the time, but one that was clearly influenced by money and also by political access. And that collaboration between riches and political power has obviously continued uh, on from that point and only developed as those two 
forms of power have become more and more nested within each other. So that a television network knows that there are certain things that it is forbidden to talk about in a serious manner, to broach in the serious non-fiction news section of their programming. For example, although it poll after poll has shown that for decades now that the vast majority of the American public do not believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone nut assassin working by himself to assassinate President Kennedy, it that the idea that it was anyone but Lee Harvey Oswald or that Lee Harvey Oswald had any sort of connection to a larger conspiracy is absolutely forbidden uh, from mainstream television programming at least until... 2022-23, when we start to see the subject broached, given some of the recent revelations of CIA documents about their relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald. We spoke to someone who had access to these still-hidden CIA documents, a person who was deeply familiar with what they contain. We asked this person directly, did the CIA have a hand in the murder of John F. Kennedy, an American president? And here's the reply we received verbatim, quote, the answer is yes. I believe they were involved. It's a whole different country from what we thought it was. It's all fake. So, uh, what what accounts for that? And is every single reporter and every single journalist and every single editor working for these organizations in on a conspiracy to cover up the truth? I think not. I think... The point of a large organization is that you do not need to own every single cook and bottle washer in order to control the kitchen. You just have to control the master chef. So in the media case, if the editor or some of the uh, the people at the top writing the checks for the corporation want something talked about or do not want something talked about, they can convey that down the line. And it gets to the point where a journalist knows uh, through various means, whether by direct confrontation or by the subtle signals that people pick up on in uh, normal society, uh, that there are certain subjects that they can look into and they can talk about and they can investigate and certain subjects that they cannot. There are many journalists who have come out of that stew of television news reporting to talk about the ways that when they went into certain subject areas, they were told, sometimes implicitly, sometimes quite explicitly, that they were not to pursue that idea any further. One example is Alison Morrow, who was working in the Pacific Northwest as a television news reporter, but was unable to get into certain stories that uh, affected the bottom line of the advertisers and sponsors of the television networks involved. For example, when she tried to uh, question uh, 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 or even present another side to the vaccine debate, uh, Big Pharma would not allow that to happen, and thus her editors would not approve certain stories, even if there was genuine public interest and a genuine story to be told. So, like, final story, that one of the last things that kind of made me crack on it all was um, our state was debating vaccine mandates for children in school and uh we were covering it and going to protest a lot like this is typically how we would do it and then we would have like a mom on tv that would be screaming about my child shouldn't have to be forced into a certain medical decision but then you would put her up against like the department of health and we never had like doctors actually or scientists debating whether vaccine mandates were good or, or a bad thing and i didn't know anything really about the topic at all at the time um 
but I happened to hear that there was a conference coming, you know, there were a bunch of, of doctors coming to town for Informed Choice Washington. I'd never heard of Informed Choice Washington. I didn't even know what Informed Choice was. Um, but I heard that, you know, that these doctors were concerned about the mandates. And I thought, oh, well, maybe that would be an interesting perspective since we never hear from scientists and doctors. We we do this this thing where it's like mom versus Department of Health, and it doesn't seem like a fair fight. I wanted to understand why there were doctors out there. Genuinely wanted to understand, Jason, because I I was I literally just gotten two vaccines to go to Africa. I was not sitting there, somebody who who knew a lot. You know, hey, let's go talk to those crazy informed choice conspiracy theorists. You know, or whatever. Like I didn't know what I was stepping into. I just thought, hey, if there were doctors that are concerned. We should talk to the doctors and have them debate the other doctors that we're bringing on the channel. We're already covering it. Let's do it that way. And I was told that I was never allowed to pitch a story again about vaccines, not even cover it. Because remember, I was an environmental reporter. I wouldn't have covered it anyway. But I wasn't even allowed to pitch stories about uh, vaccines because I was untrustworthy. I was told that I he, my boss trusted me on everything else, but not vaccines. Um, and then I was also told that they would never let somebody on our air that that question vaccines in the same way they would never let anyone question climate change, that those people were psychopaths, basically, um, that should not be listened to. So that was when I was like, wow, okay, that's interesting. I remember it was a joke. We had this like Stand for Truth campaign happening at the time. And I'm like telling my parents, you know, yeah, I just got the shirt that says Truth Seeker on it. And I want to add on the back, like, except for, and then like put the topics that, you know, we're not allowed to seek truth about. So, yeah. And, you know, hey, listen, is that something that I experienced at every news operation? No. But do I feel like that became more common? You know, that idea that, no, we don't let the Yeah, it definitely became more common uh, into the later part of my career. And there are many, many examples of reporters who have talked about this in the past. So there is a there is a top-down system of control, but it doesn't necessarily function in the sense that there is a set of marching orders that every single journalist is given. It's just that there are certain areas that they know if they want to continue and thrive and start to continue to grow their career and work their way up the ladder, they will not go into those areas. And it becomes the point at which you can have an entire organization of people who all tend to understand that there are certain things we talk about and certain things we don't without an order ever explicitly being given. Question seven. What is the future of TV, news, the media, in your opinion? We have been habitualized over the course of the past century to believe that the 2D representations of things on screens is the media, and that is how media functions, and that is what it will always look like. But of course, a century ago, the idea of watching moving images on a screen and listening to a voice talking to you when that voice is not in the same room would have appeared like magic, well, the future iterations of media technology would no doubt appear magical to us from our perspective. And I think we start to comprehend where things are going when we stop thinking of the media as an outside extension that we put our attention and focus into and can turn down and turn off at any time and start thinking about the ways that we are going to start literally placing ourselves into a mediated experience of reality. And that takes the very clunky and somewhat ridiculous form of the VR goggles at this point and trying to go into the metaverse. Um, as crude as that may seem today and as much as we may laugh at the early iterations of this technology, I think it, there is no doubt that as we proceed and as the technology gets better and less uh, uh, obtrusive, it will become much more ubiquitous. And although 
Presumably, screens of various sorts and devices will not go away, but more and more I think we will be relying on things that are at first augmented reality, the glasses that you put on through which you can see incoming messages, you can respond to emails, you can have phone conversations, you can scroll your newsfeed while you are walking around in real space as well. And of course, eventually, why do we need the glasses when that can be implanted in some way into our into our brain or in a brain chip or in some way directly interfacing with our neurological cortex? It sounds like science fiction or magic, but then again, television would have sounded like magic to someone from the 19th century. This is the way things are going, and I think it's extremely important for us to truly ponder the significance of that change before it happens. How much of ourselves do we want to put into mediated reality? Recent uh, surveys have shown that Americans spend as much as 13 hours a day in various forms of media, whether that be textual printed media or more likely audio media or visual media, but people are spending almost all of their waking life in mediated reality now is as opposed to the real world outside. And how much worse will that be when we have augmented reality or virtual reality that we strap ourselves into? Will we ever experience reality anymore? And what does that mean for the state of humanity? These are extremely important questions that I don't pretend to have the definitive answers to, but I think we need to start thinking about this and questioning where and under what circumstances and how we will adopt this technology and incorporate it into our lives, or or not. Because it is always our option to not adopt the technology and to live more of our lives in actual reality. At any rate, these are decisions that people are going to have to start making in the near future because these technologies are coming and they are coming more quickly than I think most people expect. All right. There you go, some questions and answers for a documentary that was never used, but I think there was some useful information in there, and I hope you do too. As always, of course, all of the show notes for today's episode will be available at corbettreport.com slash tell-lie-vision, uh, at which uh, you'll be able to see all of the, the notes and the clips and the other things that I mentioned or played there. Um, but having said that, again, if you, like me, think that this is an important subject, then I hope you will, if you have not yet done so, check out The Media Matrix. Of course, like all of my other documentaries, all my other work, available for free, audio, video download, the complete hyperlink transcript is at corporatereport.com media. Please do check it out if you haven't yet. And as I say, I also have a six-hour online course that you can purchase and download from newworldnextweek.com. It includes not only the six hours of lectures, but a complete hyper, uh, hyperlinked transcript with all of the sources for all of the things that I'm talking about in that lecture, and also a study guide with um, summar summarization of the points that are being made and some questions for further study, etc., and reading list, etc. So there's a lot of information there that I think you will get something out of if you find this interesting. And it is, it is uh, mass media a history it is marketed as a history course but it is it is more than simply a history lecture it does go into the philosophy and sociology and the politics surrounding media it also looks into the metaverse and the future and what's coming as i alluded to towards the end of that question and answer for that documentary so 
a lot of information, but some of it is straightforward history, I suppose, um, with a lot of names and dates and details, including, and I've played some clips from this course in the past, so if you want to get a sense of it, you can check some of my previous work on this, including, uh, of most notably, episode 420 of the podcast on uh, mass media history, um, where I, sh I played various clips from this course. But let, let me play a different clip today, one from Lesson 2, um, of this lecture series, where I'm talking specifically about something that I alluded to, I mentioned in that Q&A that we just watched, the, uh, the, the question of TV licenses and the pork barrel politics surrounding that, because it's an interesting little bit of history. I bet you don't know the story, most people probably don't know the story of the great, one of the great media mogul, moguls of the mid-20th century, one of the pioneers of the early television broadcast era, Lady Bird Johnson? So the uh, the weapon, the TV weapon, was was fired at the American public and the public of the world, and I I think 1963 would be a good place to start understanding that. But if the TV is a weapon, the question is who created the weapon and who fired that weapon? And if we're talking about who fired the weapon, and we're talking about the context of the JFK assassination, then clearly there's only one answer, right? It's LBJ, right? LBJ, surely. No, 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 not that, not that LBJ, that LBJ. <laughs> Lady Bird Johnson, not Lyndon Baines Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson. Oh, you don't know? Yes, the media mogul of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, Lady Bird Johnson. Uh, yes, this is a fascinating story that probably most people, unless they really follow these things, probably don't know a lot about, but this was a significant part of LBJ's career. Um, as a junior congressman, just a couple of years in Congress, uh, uh, LBJ started looking at the possibility of buying a commercial radio station in Austin, Texas, called KTBC. And uh, at the time, commercial AM radio was a very lucrative business. It made significant profits. Um, helpfully assisted by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, which divvied up the airwaves in interesting ways. And LBJ being uh, a political, well, increasingly insider, started to learn how to use that system to his advantage. So in 1942, he bought, well, no, he didn't buy, sorry, sorry, Lady Bird Johnson bought KTBC in Austin, Texas with $25,000 of inheritance money that she had just received and um, immediately set about finding FCC approval for a number of things. Uh, KTBC, you see, was a failing station at the time. It was sandwiched between two higher powered San Antonio stations on the AM dial. So its signal was difficult to pick up in the first place. And it was a sundowner station, i.e. it only had its license to broadcast during daylight hours and from whatever it was, 10 p.m. onward or 8 p.m. or whenever it was, it had to shut down. And I think a local uh, college was broadcasting on that frequency or something along those lines. Um, it, was, it was not a very good station, economically speaking, at the point at which LBJ took it over. In 1942, it was under about $25,000 in debt, which and he paid about $25,000 for the station, which doesn't make much economic sense until you get to 1943, specifically January of 43. Uh, Lady Bird Johnson applies for and is immediately approved for to purchase the station. 
And then within four months, she files for and is approved for, again, from the FCC, uh, a, a move on the dial to a, um, a less crowded area of the dial where the station will be more likely to be picked up and full-time uh, broadcasting status. So it's not a sundowner anymore. It can now broadcast full-time. So immediately the FCC approves those the, that request and immediately the station's fortunes start to turn around. It goes from um, $2,600 a month in ad revenue to $5,645 a month by the end of 1943. So immediately starts becoming profitable. And um, so there's a number of moves along this path. Uh, LBJ, that is Lyndon Baines Johnson, um, gets to snag the coveted CBS affiliate slot for Austin, Texas uh, from his San Antonio rivals by paying a personal visit to Bill Paley, William Paley, who we'll talk about in a moment, um, head of CBS. And he pays a visit and lo and behold, his station, KTBC, rebranded eventually as KLBJ, gets approved for uh, uh, the CBS affiliate slot. And uh, by 1944, the station, which had gone from $2,600 a month in ad revenue to $5,600 a month, is now making $13,500 a month in ad revenue. So station definitely paying for itself at this point, thanks to the interventions of LBJ's FCC friends. Um, the interesting part about this is that the ad sales that the station was making did not just include, you know, the local carpet cleaner or the local retailer. No, no, no. There were stations, uh, station ads being bought by U.S. government contractors, i.e. LBJ was quite openly peddling influence here and making deals. Hey, you know, you advertise on my station and I'll see what I can do in Congress. Um, uh, by 1945, Lady Bird Johnson, again, had appealed to quintuple the power of the broadcasting signal um, immediately approved by the FCC. All of these things, of course, had been tried. The previous owner of the station had tried, tried to get full-time broadcasting status, had tried to get moved on the dial. None of that. And the FCC wouldn't approve it. But LBJ gets in and suddenly all of these approvals are flowing. By 1952, it gets downright comical. You have um, Lady Bird uh, applying for and receiving the coveted VHF TV license for the Austin area um, in every market in the country, the VHF license, i.e. the, uh, you know, a channel on the dial on the television, that dial was extremely uh, fiercely contested, but not in Austin. Once uh, Lady Bear Johnson applied for the VHF uh, TV license in Austin, no one else, no one else even applied because they knew, okay, she's getting it and she got it. So there you go. I mean, this is one example of how a media mogul who you would not associate as a media mogul might operate in this environment and might thus use this medium for their own personal profit, obviously peddling influence through the TV station. Why not? Or the radio slash TV station? Why not? But there are deeper levels at which this could operate. Don't you think? Lady Bird Johnson, media mogul, who knew? And of course, Lady Bird Johnson, the first lady of President Johnson, who of course became president on the back of the assassination of JFK, which obviously ties into the, the very interesting political dynamics surrounding the deep state coup that took place in 1963, but also feeds into the broader story of media and television and the first television president, Kennedy, getting shot. 
not on live TV. It was several years before that footage was seen on TV. But at any rate, it was a defining um, media image that is emblazoned in the minds of anyone who grew up in the post-1970s era anyway. And isn't that an interesting part of the story? So that clip that we just watched is from Lesson 2 of the three-lesson series on uh, mass media history. Lesson 2 on TV as a weapon, which goes from that history at the, the zenith of the print era at the end or the dawn and end of World War One, up through the electronic era of uh, news and information media, um, up to the doorstep of the online revolution. So that's lesson two, TV is a weapon. And it centers around that JFK and the various characters that are associated with that and their media connections, etc. And it traces that that history of the 20th century development and consolidation of the media oligopoly, um, which controls famously 99% of what everyone's seeing and hearing and reading on a daily basis, or at least up until the internet age, right? Anyway, it's a fascinating story. I think it's a fascinating story. If you agree, I think you will get something out of it. First thing first, check out the Media Matrix documentary. Once again, completely for free. Just go watch it if you haven't yet. And if you are intrigued and you want the deep dive, as I tend to do, the deep dives, then you can get the six-hour lecture series again, available at newworldnextweek.com. And as always, Corbett Report members get a 25% discount for being a Corbett Report member. That discount code is at the bottom of every single edition of the Corbett Report subscriber newsletter, which for those who don't know, is not a email. It is an actual post on the website. If you don't understand that, don't know how it works, if you are a paid member but don't know how to access the discount code, just get in uh, contact with me through the contact form. I'm happy to walk you through that. Having said that, I think there's a lot of meat to chew on today and a lot of things, a lot of food for thought, so I hope you will do so and uh, you make yourself uh, make use of the show notes uh, to start diving in for more detail on these various things that I've mentioned today. But that's going to do it for this edition of the Corporate Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the very near future. Media. It surrounds us. We live our lives in it and through it. We structure our lives around it. But it wasn't always this way. So how did we get here? And where is the media technology that increasingly governs our lives taking us? The Media Matrix. Watch the documentary for free at corporatereport.com media or purchase a copy on DVD at newworldnextweek.com.